Well, if you will, take your Bibles. We're going to look at the book of Philippians as we're working verse by verse through this uh, precious uh, book. We're in chapter 3 today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, just uh, uh, pick up the black Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can turn to page 922. We are in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll look at uh, verse 12 through 21, kind of close up uh, this this chapter uh, for today. Last week, I put up on the screen, which we'll do again, kind of the outline of this chapter. Where is Paul taking us? The overall theme of, of the book of Philippians, there's a lot of themes, there's a lot of theological truth, but just finding joy. As Paul is, is in prison, chained to, to the, the elite Praetorian guards, he's, he's writing this letter saying, listen, no matter your circumstances, God is worthy of our, our allegiance, and you can be full of joy regardless of what's happening in your life. Because not only did you have a past that you can be saved from, uh, you have a present where he sustains you, and you have a future glory uh, with him. And so up on the screen, I think we've got this where it talks about Paul's past, Paul's present, Paul's future. That's kind of how it's broken down. Yeah, we had this up here last week, but I got the the fill-in-the-blanks already for you to help you. Just understand, the first part really is about the past, how he's, he's counting. He's like an accountant. I, I, I count all things as loss. Listen, when I, when I evaluate everything in life, everything compared to Christ is worthless. I count this as most valuable, my relationship with Jesus and the grace he gives me. Because it gets to the, uh, when I have grace in him, it's new values, grace makes joy possible. There are things in this life that will give us temporary joy. The scripture is clear about that. You know, there'll be joy for a season because we find things of pleasure. I mean, we go to the beach, you, you, you go to the mountains, you, you find temporary times where, oh, everything's going right, and then it all falls apart. But there's an eternal joy that's given to us only by Jesus because it's not just temporary, it is forever. And so when you have Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've surrendered to him, you've been forgiven of every one of your sins, past, present, future, and you know you're secure in him, that is grace that makes joy possible. But it's not just, okay, I've got my fire insurance, I've been saved, but what about right now? Do you ever feel the presence of Christ in your life now? If you're a believer, you do. Sometimes it's discipline because you've been kind of drifting off and He disciplines those he loves, Scripture says. But what he's doing is growing you. And growth only happens when change happens and begin to pursue things that are different than what you used to pursue. And so in uh, verse 12 through 16, uh, you'll see, and we'll have most of that section uh, today in a sense of our focus, you're going to see that there's growth required. When he saves you, he didn't just save you and leaves you where you are. He's going to work in you. Now, the beauty of this picture is this. You don't clean yourself up and prepare yourself for Christ. He saves you, and then he begins to work in you to grow you. Some people get it all mixed up in religion. They go, well, I I know I want to love God. I want God to love me, so I'm going to do all this work and then present myself as perfected so he might show me favor. That's backwards. Why would you do everything on your own when he says, I'll do it all for you? If you'll just surrender your heart, then I'll begin to walk and walk with you and work in you and through you for your sanctification, your holiness. Growth makes joy sustainable. And he concludes the chapter of chapter 3 about the future. Where are we heading? 
You know, and he, I use the word alien there because alien means uh, foreign. You're, you're from somewhere else. Our world here is not our permanent residence. It, this isn't our home. When he saves us, we're a part of an eternal kingdom. And so we're, we're going somewhere else, and we eagerly await for that day. The, the scriptures are very clear that our bodies uh, 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 moan and ache, and, and we go through these difficulties. You know, even you, you say, well, I'm a believer. Why, why do I experience cancer? Why, why do I experience difficulties in my body? That's just how the world is because of sin. Not necessarily your sin con uh, conquered or uh, 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 was the consequence of, of your difficulties. This, all of us are going to have aches and pains and difficulties and uh, uh, circumstances that take place, not directly related to your personal sin. But the, the, the beauty of it is, this doesn't have to be the end. This is a launching pad for eternity where there is no more pain, no more tears, no more you know, difficulties. It, it'll all be removed. There is a future we eagerly await for. That's a new vision. When you're running a marathon and, you're, and you need that second wind to finish it, how many of you have ever done a marathon? Oh, none of you. Okay, so uh, maybe one back in the back, you know. Uh, I haven't either. I, I did a 5K one time and I thought I was going to die. Um, but anyway, so but it, you, you get to that point like, I don't know if I can go any further. But when you have the end in mind, it can keep you progressing forward, saying this, there, there will be an end. There's an end to this world and there's a whole new world coming. And glory makes joy eternal. It's not temporary. So we've got the grace and we've got growth. That's required of us now. And then the glory to come. That the, There's a promise there that we've got to cling on to. Well, today I want to look at uh, Paul's present and future since we looked at Paul's past. And, and what does it mean for our present and future? Now, when we consider the future, some people, are, they display either apathy or anxiety about the future. Apathy is, well, I don't really think about it. I get up, whatever happens, happens. I don't think about the future. And then some people are very anxious about it. That's all they can think about it, and they're worried about it because they can't control it. They can't make certain things happen, even though they, they attempt to. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Any C.S. Lewis fans, by the way, around here? Yeah, oh, look at that. A lot more than marathoners. All right, so C.S. Lewis has some great books. In his Screwtape Letters, uh, he, there's a, a portion in here that was said, we have trained them, talking about people, we have trained them to think of the future as a promised land which favored heroes attain. I mean, it's not for everybody. No, not everybody's going to have a great future. It's, it's only the, the precious few. He goes on and says, not as something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is. What, what is your future and, and, and what is your vision for the future? We need to prepare for the future now. What is our vision for the future? It, it, it depends on, on how we see Christ and what our present is going to be like. How can we live a life of joy and contentment in the present? It's when we eagerly await for the glorious future. This, this whole book, but particularly this chapter, focuses on knowing Jesus as the ultimate pursuit of our life. I want you to notice in verse 12, as he begins this section in verse, uh, chapter 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, no, we're not there, but I press on to make it known, my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a precious statement. See, this knowing Jesus and pressing on, and sometimes pressing on can be difficult. You're, you're, gonna, you're going against the headwinds. Pressing on is the pursuit of 
Christ, not just a Christian life. A lot of people say, well, I just want to have a good Christian life. You know, there are some people who try to live the Christian life without Christ, which certainly does not match. The power to be able to live the Christian life is only in the pursuit of a personal relationship with Christ. The more we know Christ, the more the Christian life becomes evident in our life. When you do it the other way around, you're just trying to perfect your performance and not desire a personal relationship. This, this relationship with Christ, knowing Jesus and pressing on, is more about intimacy than simply having a lot of activity. As we referenced the, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount last week, you know, uh, look, Lord, all that we've done for you. He says, yeah, but I never knew you. Depart from me. Activity doesn't match intimacy, but intimacy will produce the activity because he's working in you. Well, today I want to break down this passage, and, and I've got seven points. So if you're, you're listening fast, we can be able to accomplish this. But I want you to see what he says as, as this position that we have. How do we grow in Christ now that prepares us for glory later? And glory for us, by the way, our, our death may be today. It might be this week. Or it might be 50 years from now. It really doesn't matter. You say, yeah, but I'd like to get a lot more uh, uh, mileage out of my life. Well, if the Lord desires for that, then you better live your life for the Lord while you have those days. But if he were to take you out today, it's his choice. It's his will. And we have to learn to be content with that as well. So let's, let's live the life he's given us to our, our fullest. Well, how do we do that? How do we grow now until glory? The first thing he mentions in verse 12 is evaluation. Evaluate yourself. Where are you? As you honestly evaluate your life, does your desire for him outweigh your desires for other pursuits? Are you satisfied spiritually with where you are? He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. I mean, he's evaluating his life. I haven't obtained it. I'm looking at my life. I'm, I haven't arrived. I'm not yet perfect, he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He had a proper perspective of self, which is always needed if you're going to grow. People who overestimate their goodness or, or, or their quality will never grow because they don't see a need to. Paul admits he's, he's not arrived to completion, but he understands that grace has, has provided the opportunity for his growth now. Paul is satisfied with Christ, but he's not yet satisfied with his own life. He says, I haven't obtained it, so therefore I want to press on because I want to know him more. I want to, I want to see what he can do through me. I want to desire him more than I desire anything else. But he's basically saying, I know whose I am, and I know where I'm headed. So in this, this phrase, this precious phrase, I want you to see this. What is his desire here as he evaluates? I, I want to see what I'm really desiring. And my desire is to press on to make it my own. Look into the words. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love him because he first loved me. That Christ has already bought me with his blood. He has already brought me into relationship by his grace. There was nothing I, I could do to earn that. But he, has, he, he owns me. And what I see in Romans is that anyone in the hand of God will never be able to be separated from him. There is a security in that. 
So we're not trying to earn our salvation or trying to keep it based on our works. We're already owned by him when we trust him. But man, man, if I could, as Paul says, if I could just continue to, to own what is already owned. If he has pursued me and brought me in, man, I want to pursue him now so much that, that it becomes my own. There, there is uh, the reality that every one of us who, who has grown up, perhaps you grew up in a Christian home, perhaps you did not. But even if, let's say you grew up in a Christian home and your parents taught you the values of the faith. Your Sunday school teacher in church, they taught you the values of the faith. They owned it and they were trying to, to get, help you with it. And maybe you were able to tear it back to them, the verses they t- had you memorize. Maybe you're in Awana and you could, you could quote everything they said. But you are adopting a faith that was being presented to you. But there has to come a time in your life where it's not just repeating back what you've heard, but you own the faith that's been taught to you. You don't go to heaven because your grandma is going to heaven. You're not going to heaven because your dad was a preacher or because he was a deacon. Those things are helpful and very influential. But at some point, you've got to make a personal decision. You've got to own it. And when you own it, it's because Christ now has revealed to you that he owns you. He has transformed your heart. And so that precious phrase, I've gone back to that phrase in my own life many times. Why do I want to press on when sometimes I just feel like giving up or, or I just, I, I'm, I'm struggling, I, I, I'm discouraged? No, I need to press on to make it my own because Christ has already made me his own. I, I, I bought at a price and there's only joy in him. So if you evaluate your life, where are you spiritually? What are your desires? Where are you headed? Then I want you to notice in, in, uh, in verse 13, there's a concentration. All right, you, you know, you, you begin to own something. Okay, now, now I'm going to pursue Christ. I've evaluated. I'm not quite where I, I need to be. I'm saved, but I need to grow. Where do I go? What do I do? It's like starting your first you know, semester of college. I've got all these courses, and I've got all these things. Does everybody understand I've got too much to do? So Paul brings it right down to us so to concentrate. And he says, brothers, I do not consider that I, have made it, uh, uh, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. How many of you would love to just sign up to do one thing this week? Not anything, just one, if I could just do one thing. <laughs> there are times, that I, I, I watch these little things that come across the internet once in a while, and, you know, guy has one job, you know, and he blows it. You know, we have one job as a believer, pursue Christ, to love him. Don't blow it. You know, the guy who makes the, the mile markers or the, or the person who puts the yellow stripes down the middle of the road, and you ever seen the ones that go straight and then it kind of curves over and curves over? What in the world are you doing? You had one job and you blew it. As a believer, the only reason why it, your, your life is veering off because you're starting to focus on things that don't matter as much. He says here, I, 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 but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing. It's a phrase used often in the scriptures. Just a few examples I'll give you this morning. Uh, when, when Jesus was speaking to the rich young ruler in Mark 10, he says, you lack one thing. You think you got all of it figured out, but there's one thing you lack, the one thing that matters. He says to uh, Martha uh, about Mary, there's one thing that is necessary. You're cleaning the kitchen, you're getting the meal all ready, all that's good, but there's one thing that really matters. 
the relationship with me that Mary was, was pursuing. To the, uh, the blind man said to the council in John 9, one thing I do know, I don't know a lot of things, but one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. He's not a theologian. He doesn't have a doctorate degree from Liberty University, but he knows one thing. I was blind, now I see, and that man did it. That's all that matters. In Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. What is the one thing that your life is pursuing? I like Nehemiah in chapter 6. He didn't use the phrase one thing, but you get the impression here that that's all that mattered. He says, I'm doing a great work. As he had Sanballat and Tobias, they were building a wall to protect the city after the exile. And he's building the wall, and Sanballat and Tobias did everything to try to get him to come. Hey, why don't you just come down, basically, come down and have some breakfast. Hey, we'll go to the coffee shop. Let's just do something. Let us, let's have a talk about this. Let's have a meeting. And, and, and Nehemiah's response was, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He might saying, there's one thing I'm focused on right now. And hanging out with you to be discouraged or to stop the work that God's doing is not my pursuit. In James chapter 1, verse 8, it gives us some wisdom here. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How many pursuits do you have, ultimate pursuits do you have? When you're double-minded, you'll be unstable. There ought to be one thing that you're focused on. Too many Christians are way too involved in too many things when the, the secret of progress and growth is concentrated on one thing. Do you start your morning focused on the Lord? Do you end your day focused on Him? Do you seek His, his wisdom and guidance throughout the day when you, you, you deal with challenges? Is prayer a last resort or your first pursuit? I want you to notice the two actions he has in this concentration. It's one thing and two, two actions. One thing with two actions. First is a negative uh, action. Forgetting what lies behind. Runners who look backwards in the race typically lose. You ever seen one of those clips where somebody's about to win and they're, they're excited and they turn around to see who the competition is, all of a sudden whoosh, somebody passes them? Oh, how embarrassing. You don't look back until the race is finished. He says, don't look back. Past failures, Satan will use to distract us. When you're making pursuits and you're doing the things of God and God's working in you and Satan throws up, yeah, but do you remember that one thing back then? Sometimes you do this to each other. Somebody's making pursuits and then you remind them of a past failure as if it is something to be shamed by as if God hasn't forgiven them and they've not moved on. Past successes can sometimes be a deterrent to future growth. You have past failures that distract you. You've got past uh, successes that, that keep you from moving on. Listen, the past is over it and you have to move on. It doesn't mean you can't remember them and honor those things and, and, and be excited about what God has done. We honor the past, we learn from the past, but we cannot live in the past. Amen? You can't live in the past. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Which much of that is the past. If you want to run forward, you can't continue to look backwards. What memory today do you need to get rid of? 
What, what, what memory do you need to let go of? What past failure or success do you need to just turn over to the Lord so you can focus on what he has for you now? But in this, this action of one thing, it's not just the negative. I want you to see the positive. It's not just putting the past behind. It says straining towards to what lies ahead. Looking to the finish line. Straining to the future. There is no coasting to the finish line. Keep the gas pressed. As he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, as he concludes that verse that I was referencing, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. One thing. He moves on from the one thing in verse 14. He goes into verse 15 talking about cooperation. This race is not to be run alone. Runners even, uh, you know, that, that run a long ways do appreciate those who stand on the sidelines to cheer them on and hand them bottles of water. And also when you're running with a group, it, it continues to encourage you because it, it's just, yes, we can do it. We can do it together. And I want you to notice verse 15 says, let those of us, plural, who are mature, think this way. We're running together. We're growing together. We're becoming all that Christ has desired for us. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Though positionally we are perfect in Christ because of what Christ has done, practically we're still in progress. So therefore, as we continue to move forward, there's an attitude of thinking, a mind that we have to have that works in a single fashion with other believers. This pursuing of Christ's likeness. I mentioned when I first got here, I began to preach a message called, We Are Better Together. Because the church is the plurality of all of us who know Jesus. doesn't matter if it, they're from Lynchburg or they're from Indiana or Ohio or Georgia or around the world. Together, we, we march together. We encourage one another. We celebrate God's goodness and we pursue Christ's likeness as we pursue Christ. Christ developed the church so that he could enable your growth. Look at verse 16, preservation. He notices, he says, uh, only let us, plural once again, hold true to what we have obtained. Basically saying, don't lose ground, don't give up, don't give in. Too often we struggle in the Christian life because we ask the wrong questions. People come asking, well, is, this the wrong, uh, is it wrong to do this? Well, how far is too far? What we really should be asking is, can I do this and still be okay with God? Is this against the rules? No, don't ask that. We should be saying, is this going to help me grow in Christ in a better relationship? There's a preservation. Hold on to what we have obtained, what God has given us. Let us hold on to it with holiness and, and perseverance. Will this help me know Jesus better and live like I know him? Listen, you're free to live for Christ. You live in grace, yet let it not be a cheap grace. Cheap grace. Well, I I'm saved. Now I can do, we'll do whatever I want. Listen, consider what you participate in is either an obstacle or a pathway to growth in Jesus. Whatever you're doing, it's either an obstacle or a pathway to a growing relationship with Jesus. Are you hindering yourself by what you do or preserving what you have in pursuing more? Preservation. Let us hold on to what is true. 
In verse 17, he says, imitation. He's already mentioned this type of approach before. He's, he's given us in chapter 2 a couple examples. He gave us Christ. He gave us, he gave us Epaphroditus. He gave us Timothy. And here he goes ahead and throws it out there. Brothers, join in imitating me. Now, that's a bold statement. Paul's like, listen, if you need a model, look at me. But you, you notice here he says, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's already admitted, I'm not perfect. I'm still in pursuit. But it says, follow me as I'm following Christ. As I'm doing the things of, of God, do that. If you need a physical human example, here I am. Which puts a lot of weight on the leader here. James tells us that not many of you should pursue to become a teacher because you're held to a higher account. Why? Because those you teach will follow your example and are you leading them closer to Christ or further away? People are human. Every person will disappoint you. Every leader, teacher, example will make mistakes. But it does not exclude them from being a model but there is only one perfect model, and that's Jesus. One of my prayers in the, in, for West Lynchburg is that there would be more models able to be followed. That more leaders, more Christians, more Christ pursuers will be an example. That others in this body will be able to follow as an example in their marriage or in their workplace, uh, just in, in, in their temperament, whatever they do, that they can be followed. And then it would be so contagious that people throughout the community would see, wow, they don't just talk a good game, they actually live it out. They must actually believe what they say because we see it. They are living and loving and leading like Jesus. Imitation. In verse 18 through 20, there's a separation. A separation. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I mean, there's, there's going to be people that are coming against the things we're doing. And he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But separated from them, or those who follow Christ. But our citizenship, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Oh, we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come back. Here you see that there are enemies of the cross of Christ. And certainly we see this in our day as well. Look at what he, he describes them as. First, their end is destruction. See, rejecting Christ as the only way of salvation leads to hell. That is a promise. It is not just a threat. Their end is destruction. Those who, who pursue uh, uh, being an enemy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ will find their end in destruction. It says that their God is their belly. Th this basically is their pursuits of pleasure. Now, I like a good meal. I like going to the buffets. Then you can have as much as you want. But we all have our buffet of pleasures in this world. Oh, I'd like a little bit of that. Oh, I'd like a little bit of this. Those who make that their ultimate pursuit of pleasure, pleasure is far greater than their pursuit of God. God says, you know, I'd like you to remain celibate in your marriage. I, I'd like you to, to uh, uh, you know, be monogamous or, or 
keep yourself pure before marriage. Yeah, but man, I got some pleasures. Maybe God will just forgive me. Listen, the pursuit of the pleasures of your life will always lead you to disappointment because no one will give you pleasure like Christ. And when you do it according to his will, there's far more abundant pleasure. There are enemies of the cross of Christ. They're into destruction. Their God is their belly where they pursue pleasure over the pursuit of God. And their glory is, uh, in, is in their shame. Last week, I think, I, I was speaking about the Judaizers, those who are trying to add law into the grace. All right, yeah, maybe you're saved by Jesus' death, but you also have to have this, 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 and this. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep all the Sabbath laws. You've got to do the Judaizers who are trying to mix in Jesus plus, which isn't salvation at all. Here, the Judaizers would boast about their goodness, but they would have no standing with God. When they see God face to face, and they say, well, look at all these rules and regulations that we added to your law. We were so good, we kept it all. The glory would be their shame because their glory would be their own and not the glory of God who worked in and through them. And then you see, with minds set on earthly things, that was where they were limited. They could not think of the things of heaven because they, they put all their thoughts on things here on earth. They loved the world and not the Father who created the world. That is a pursuit. That is a temptation. That is a movement in our world and always will be. But Paul reminds them, even if perhaps they've slipped into some of these lesser pursuits, he says, listen, our citizenship is in heaven. Stop focusing just on the now. Remember where you're headed when you pursue Jesus. You can pursue the destruction. You can pursue these things that are uh, going to be uh, your shame. But our citizenship is in heaven where we await our Savior. A.W. Tozer has some incredible books. Any A.W. Tozer fans? There's a few of them out there. Uh, if you've never heard his name, just look, look him up. He's, he's well worth the read. He has small books, but they take you a lot of time to read it because it's packed with incredible statements. You just have to pause. He gave a self-evaluation of our heavenly citizenship. He, he, he was speaking in one of his books. He says, you know, I want you to consider where you are. Evaluate your life. Is there a separation between the world and you now in, in what you're pursuing? Let, let me give these to you, and, uh, and, and I've rephrased a few of them here. But he says, uh, ask yourself this question. What do we want or what do we desire most? It's quite an evaluation question. What is our highest desire? And the second question is, what do we think about most? What's on our mind? What really comes to mind all, all the time? The third is, he said, how do we use our money? Because that, that kind of shows where our, 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 our citizenship is, where we really desire to be. The fourth question was, what do we do with our free time? The fifth question, what company do we enjoy most? Who do we really love spending time with? The sixth question, who or what do we admire the most? In the celebrity culture that we live in, even believers can sometimes get uh, sideways in who or what they admire the most. The last question he had was, what do we laugh at the most? 
What gives us the humor? What, what do we find funny? What do we find enjoyable? So the question I have, is your mind more in the things of earth or the things of heaven? It's a challenge here. But remember, we're pursuing joy. We're, we're, we're finding joy. Whereas joy found, it's not in the things of this world ultimately. There's temporary joys and there are, are pleasures that God gives us. But if it's not founded in, in our pursuit of Christ, then it will be short-lived and extremely uh, disappointing, even destructive. In verse 21, he says, you want to grow? It has to be about transformation. He says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That is the ultimate goal. That, that as we live in this world, and even our bodies will, will have pains and struggles and, and challenges, our goal in our growth is that one day there'll be a transformation. He will transform this lowly body into his, uh, like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We haven't arrived yet. We're not complete yet, but we will be. Things will be perfected. Things will change for the better. Philippians chapter 1, he would already told us in verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Our lives will be made new. Our bodies and our minds will be transformed. His promise and his power guarantees our eternal state. I like Corey ten Boom, who said years ago, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. The question is, do you know him? The future is bright because God is there. In a London museum, the British uh, Museum in London, there's an old mariner's map drawn from 1525 A.D. On the unexplored areas of this North American coast is scribbled several places. Here be dragons. Here be giants. Here be fiery scorpions. Because it was unknown, so they just would put these fear tactics perhaps to keep people from trying to pursue that direction. But in this museum, this particular map, it was in the early 1880s, the map came into possession of the British explorer Sir John Franklin, who didn't fear the unknown because he was so fully trusting in the God he did know. And perhaps without permission, he took that map, he rubbed out the terrifying inscriptions and wrote over them, Here be God. When you think about your future and what is to come, when you're pursuing Christ and there's so much unknown, do you put on there, here be scorpions, here be awful things, or do you write with full confidence when you pursue God, here is God. Five years from now, ten years from now, fifty years from now, eternity. Is God in your vision? Is he in your future? He'll only be in your future when he is in your present. Growth leads to glory because grace made it possible. Let me just remind you of two verses in this chapter alone that, that, that could be your focus. In verse 8, 
It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. I'm in my present state. I, I, I haven't been perfected, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Perhaps that's where your focus needs to be. Count it all as loss and pursue him. And let us help you. Let all of us help one another until the completion in the day of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, that's your grace that gives us this opportunity to be loved and, and to know the fullness of joy and to know your presence on a daily basis, to know that when we're feeling so alone, you are right there. When, when we're feeling dis, uh, discouraged, you are right there. When, when we don't know what the future holds, we can know you who holds the future. And I pray, Father, for any believer here this morning, they've been encouraged and they're feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit to draw them back into a close, intimate relationship with you and a passionate pursuit of growing in you. I also pray for any of those who've never really crossed the, the line of faith, that they, they perhaps believe in God, but they don't really know you. They've never surrendered their life to you, confessed their sins and repented and said yes to Jesus. I pray you would use your Holy Spirit to, to let them know you're, you're purchasing them and if they would grab a hold of that which you've already grabbed a hold, they would find fullness of joy. Father, today, may you just move in the hearts of, of those who are here and those watching online. 